Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. So, uh, here we are, together again for the last time in the year of 2012. And while I, I think that it's probably normal for an end-of-the-year program to look back at significant events of that year, well, I'm not going to do that. My guess is that, uh, well, you've probably already had your fill of the best and worst of 2012. So instead, I thought that we should get started on creating the best of 2013. And uh, so I'm going to end off 2012 and kick off 2013 with a talk given in the summer of 1990 (laughs) by the one and only Terrence McKenna. Now, in a few moments, when you hear Terrence talking about the possibility of pouring all of our information into a global database, well, keep in mind that this talk was given a year before CERN first announced this little thing called the World Wide Web, which makes it almost two years before Mark Andreessen released the first browser into the wilds of the net. So, if you can, try to think of what your own technical situation was like back then. Did you even have a computer then? And uh, if so, were you able to envision the tech of today with all kinds of handheld and wireless devices and oceans of data to capture and turn into information and maybe even turn into some kind of knowledge? We've uh, certainly come a long way in the technological area since uh, this talk was given. But uh, I think that you'll still find that much of what Terrence has to say is uh, still relevant today. And among other things that I found noteworthy about this talk is uh, a reminder of what it was often like at Terrence's workshops. Uh, After about 40 minutes, Terrence comes to the end of his prepared remarks and opens the floor for questions. Now, as you'll discover in just a moment, the terrain that Terrence covers before this first question was uh, truly remarkable for the wide variety of esoteric and metaphysical topics that he covered. Yet, uh, (laughs) the first question he got was about how to best use Anamita muscaria mushrooms. (laughs) Poor Terrence. Uh, You know, while he had so many exciting things to talk about, he still had to spend a lot of his time uh, simply giving advice about the use of psychedelics. Uh, Well, because at the time, he was really about the only source of this information that was publicly available. It uh, must have taken a tremendous amount of courage for Terrence to stand up and, uh, well, be almost the only public spokesperson for the psychedelic experience at the time. Even today, uh, most people are afraid to even bring this topic up among friends that aren't uh, also on this path. So my hat is off to the Bard McKenna, not just for his mind, but for his courage as well. And so now let's join Terrence McKenna on a July evening in 1990 and uh, hear what was on his mind at that time. We closed last night, or we discussed yesterday, a bumper sticker that I saw driving down here. And the bumper sticker said, uh, Man thinks, God knows. And then someone had bought a second copy of the bumper sticker and cut it apart and reversed it and put it under it. So it said, Man thinks, God knows. God knows, man thinks. (laughs) 
Now, it seemed to me there was a lot going on in what was attempting to be expressed here. First of all, something about God that God knows, that God exists in a superior state of intellection. Plato said time is the moving image of eternity. My notion of God's cognition is simply the regarding of all points in the space-time continuum with equal clarity. God knows. The limited program of knowing is thought, cognition. Man thinks. This is what man can do in imitation of the all-knowing and omniscient example of God. But Implicit is that this is somehow an, a limited undertaking, this thinking of man. And, and uh, some of you may recall the famous comment of Pascal that uh, man is a reed bent by the wind. And then Pascal added, but a thinking reed. So then the second half of the conundrum was that God knows, man thinks. Now this, I thought, was very interesting because it seems to imply a relationship between the limited project of knowing, which is human thought, and the completed project of knowing, which is omniscience. God knows, man thinks. In a way, what this is saying is that God knows that man is making his way toward God. God knows man thinks. God knows that man is participating in the same project of being that God regards from this higher dimensional space. And so then this meditation on these four lines closes with the recurso which returns you then to this realization that what we are talking about is the project of knowing, Heidegger called it, carried out on two levels, on the level of omniscience and on the level of limited being. So then I meditated on this after we discussed it yesterday, and I thought tonight it might be interesting then to talk about the thinking project of that is the essence of humanness on one level, the thinking project which has as its vector, um, I call it concrescence following Whitehead's Neoplatonism, one could call it God, Teilhard de Chardin called it the Omega point, but the, the, the um, process by which knowing transforms itself from some kind of aboriginal uh, apperception of the possibility of God into union with God. And the process that lies between these two points is the story of the evolution of human consciousness, or more properly speaking, human history. And the interesting thing, I think, about uh, the Western religions generally is their insistence on um, 
the tangentiality of God and history, that God was something to be realized in the life of each individual, but that there was also somehow a collective drama of redemption that was stretched out over a very large period of time. And history then becomes the theater, you see, of the struggle between good and evil for the redemption of the human soul. And from the modern point of view, or let's be more frank, from my point of view, <laughs> this is uh, primarily something to be analyzed within the context uh, of language and our myths about it and its evolution and its potential future evolution. So I... And this is in my personal life the the great mystery to me because I feel that I'm my intellectual style is that of a scientist and I take very seriously science and yet my not only my faith but my uh, experience has led me to believe that the world is not a construction of space and time and matter and energy, that that mapping is uh, insufficient, that the world is instead some kind of a uh, linguistic construct. It is more in the nature of a sentence or a novel or a work of art than it is in the nature of these machine models of interlocking law that we inherit out of a thousand years of rational reductionism. The, the world only behaves as science says it should when we confine our engagement with it to information that is at a great distance from us, like reading the New York Times every day. If you read the New York Times every day, Few miracles will occur while you are engaged in that activity. Essentially what is happening is you are getting your cultural programming for the day. All your switches, if any need being, need to be reset by cultural values, are reset at that point. But when we recede into what I call the primacy of immediate experience, the... the rules and models that we've been handed by science and uh, what's called common sense are just totally found to be inadequate. And I don't mean when we perturb ordinary consciousness with psychedelic drugs. I'll speak about that in a moment. But I simply mean when we go into solitude, when we go into wilderness, when we endure great travail in our lives, or when we put ourselves in extraordinary alien circumstances, then it's as though the membrane between the ego and something else, which we could call our guardian angel, or the Jungian unconscious, or the overmind, something like that, the membrane grows thin and the world 
loses its, um, what do I want to say, its mundane character. And instead, things previously mundane begin to become charged with psychic energy. They become carriers of meaning. They become carriers of meaning. This is very peculiar. At, at a low level, it's not so astonishing. It's a kind of generalized opening to the world because everything is imbued with significance. That tree, that person, that greeting, that conversation is imbued with a kind of depth and significance that is satisfying. It's like living deeply, living deeply. But this phenomenon can proceed to a deeper level of introspection and relationship to the exterior. And in that case then, this significance, which everything was previously seen to have, begins to compress or densify, and the world begins to dissolve into animate intelligence. Now, at this point, um, if you didn't bargain for this, you're probably very concerned about your mental condition. And if you aren't, your friends are. Because what you're saying at this point is, the rivers talk to me, the trees whisper in my ear. What you're recovering is the meaning. That's all, the meaning that is self-evident in nature, but that we block. The meaning is so pregnant in everything that it can actually articulate itself in your native English tongue. And, uh, you know, talking rocks, talking trees, talking boulders, we define this as uh, pathology. It means, uh, in technical jargon, a severely diminished ego is in danger of overwhelmment by uh, material from the inchoate and disorganized unconscious. Well, but what's actually happening is that for the first time in somebody's life or experience, they are meeting the resident meaning in reality with its force unblunted by uh, conditioning and denial. And um, this is some kind of a linguistic process. We, and all nature, I think, swims in some kind of sea of signification of which we are, in the same way that the amphibians were able to drag themselves out of the primitive oceans of this planet into air, and exist in a completely different dimension, we, whether grandly or perversely, the verdict is not yet in, we dragged ourselves out of the sea of telepathic interconnected signification that united all life, and we exist panting and pop-eyed in this other dimension called history ego awareness, presence of self, sense of loss, anticipation of gain, all of these uh, dimensions 
of experience really have been added to what was previously the animal Tao, just the howling at the moon Tao of animal existence. And to this we have added, you know, a dimension of future anticipation, a dimension of regret, a dimension of how do I make choices, and so forth and so on. Um, There is not a... I don't put a, a... moral uh, judgment on this, but it has to be said that in the tradition of the West, this has been viewed classically as the fall. This is the fall into names instead of realities, into uh, constructs of reality rather than reality itself. And this has now been uh, inculcated into each and every one of us as, you know, both the glory and the, and the trauma of human existence, which is our extraordinary ability to reside in and be in language. So, for instance, you know, I've made this example before. A child lying in a crib and a hummingbird comes into the room and the child is ecstatic because this shimmering iridescence of movement and sound and attention, it's just wonderful. I mean, it is an instantaneous miracle when placed against the background of the dull wallpaper of the nursery and so forth. But then mother or nanny or someone comes in and says, it's a bird, baby, bird, bird. And this takes this linguistic piece of mosaic tile and and places it over the miracle and glues it down with the epoxy of syntactical momentum. And from now on, the miracle is confined within the meaning of the word. And by the time a child is four or five or six, there no light shines through. They're, they have tiled over every aspect of reality with a linguistic association that blunts it, limits it, and confines it within cultural expectation. But this doesn't mean that this world of signification is not outside, still existent beyond the horizons, the foreshortened horizons of a culturally validated language. Well, so then classically the path through this has been through use of psychedelic plants or uh, some form of ascetic practice or fasting or prayer and meditation, whatever, some way of breaking through. And it is literally presented as a breaking through, a penetration to another level, that culture is an imprisoning bubble of interlocking (laughs) assumptions that are like a a collective hallucination. I mean, I hate to say it because it's a recursive metaphor, but culture is like a delusion of some sort because it isn't true, of course, it isn't true if you're 
uh, a Witoto. It isn't true that you came from the piss of the anaconda god when he had to get out of his canoe at the first waterfall. That's not really true, but that's your cultural myth and you live inside it. Our cultural myths, that the world is made of things called new masons and anti-protons, is of course not true either. But it's a linguistic construct that we culturally validate and live inside. And these cultural myths give permission for certain things. Basically, they give permission to ignore certain kinds of realities. So our language is uniquely set up to ignore, for example, the suppression of femininity. It's also uniquely set up to suppress the statistically uh, uh, infrequent. We really have no patience with that. We have an assembly mind mentality what we're interested in is that things run smoothly. One can imagine a completely different mentality that cared nothing for statistical norms and only pursued the miraculous. I mean, India, in a way, is that society. They don't give a hoot for you know how it works on the humdrum level, but the, the, the alien, the peculiar, the other, the unexpected is revered, adored even. So... These kinds of cultural values shift, but now, now, we are in a global culture with the combined understandings of five, six, seven hundred language groups and half that many literatures being poured into a global database where some people are assimilating enough of this to begin to play their part in the creation of a, a kind of global meta-program for language. And uh, I think it's interesting to talk about the form that this may take, because I see this as our... Uh, this is not our salvation, but this is the angel of our salvation. If we can transform and remake language, then we can have the conversation that we must have in order to save ourselves. But we cannot save ourselves until we have a language adequate to the problem that we're facing. And uh, English just won't do it, because English is a language of subject-object uh, subject opposition, it's a uh, language of a past, present, and future. And the kind of world we're living in is not that kind of world. Now, toiling in the background, misunderstood and uh, unnoticed for centuries, have been mathematicians laboring to create what they call meta-language of, of description that seemed to them very satisfying, to the rest of us very bewildering. And a question worth asking is, why is it that this language, mathematics, which we have so much trouble understanding, seems so tremendously powerful when it comes to the description of nature? This is not a trivial question. Why should numbers, in a sense the most abstract quintessence of the human mind, have anything whatsoever to say about the topology of three-dimensional space and time. It isn't clear. 
What I believe is happening, and we talked about this last night, generally in the form of a conservation of novelty throughout the history of the universe. But I tended last night to present the universe as a material thing. I spoke of atoms concressing into molecules, into organic creatures, into thinking beings with civilizations and so forth. But another way to think of this is a kind of take a spiritual x-ray of the material universe and then say if matter is merely the vehicle of the transformations that we call the life of the universe, well then what is the inner dynamic composed of? What is it that is striving? What is it that bootstraps itself forward? What is it that self-reflects? Well, I think what it is is it's actually information. Information is some kind of... um, ontological modality that is capable of organizing any system in which it inhabits into self-reflection. So you pour information into matter and you get back DNA capable of making life. But, you know, there is a persistent spiritual tradition backed up by psychedelic and shamanic experience that says that there are also hierarchies of incorporeal and disincarnate intelligence that is nevertheless highly organized. Well, until the advent of the computer, I think we were just pretty much at a loss to form any conception whatsoever of how you could have consciousness without uh, a body. But the computer shows us that you can have large-scale systems which have degrees, and then, you know, there's a long philosophical wrangle which we can just stamp as for another time, degrees of sentience in operating systems. So then it it seems to mean that information is the thing which uses matter, uses light, uses spirit, uses whatever it can put its hands on to organize itself into higher and higher levels of self-reflection. Well, then, to what end? I mean, what is all this? Is it just an innate drive toward totality? Or is it a process which exists completed in some higher dimensional space and we are somehow trapped in a lower dimensional matrix and we have to, go, uh, we have to endure the illusion that it is incomplete? I mean, I don't have answers for these things. This is the business of theologians, basically, to tell us where we are in this universal machine. But I think that uh, what we can do to enrich our uh, experience and to feed data into our heuristic models is to begin to think in terms of language as the material that we need to work with instead of uh, public opinion or matter or even energy. It's meaning that we need to coax into our lives. Number one, as meaning enters our lives individually, 
we became we become more capable of raising our voices both in joyous song and in political protest if necessary my whole shtick and the whole shtick of the psychedelic experience i think is reclaim immediate experience realize that you outvote all parliaments police forces and major newspapers on the planet because who knows they may be illusions complicated phenomenological forms of analysis can be carried out to show that their existence is in considerable doubt but if you carry out this phenomenological reduction you will discover that it reinforces the notion that you must actually exist and be real so therefore you start from that that nub of immediate experience and real being and extrapolation outward should be very provisional i mean i don't know uh, how buddhism handles this my i i um i grant you all a strong possibility of existing but i'm not nearly as sure about you as i am about me and <laughs> and i don't think any of you should be any sure more sure of the rest of us than yourself i mean the world could be anything you know it could be a solid state matrix of some sort it could be an illusion it could be a dream i mean it really could be a dream <laughs> so it uh, it pays to stay on your toes i think in practical terms what does all this come down to besides that we should speak from the heart clearly and with our minds engaged well i th i think that remember i said we should see language as the stuff with which we work rather than matter and that means uh, creating a technology of the sayable making the complete understanding of new puns a national priority on a par with weapons development it means exploring uh, the real implications of substituting finnegan's wake for the constitution this sort of thing because what we're doing you see is 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 pulling the beard of the linear printheads who really believe all of this stuff who really are lost in the labyrinth of the of the political errors of the last 500 years it isn't going we can't uh overwhelm them by force of arms nor should we wish to uh they can actually be teased out of existence because they themselves feel their position to be so ridiculous it's very interesting how uh the way the collapse of our enemy in the soviet union has exposed the absurdity of our previous positions all our previous positions are now exposed as absurd but people don't draw the obvious conclusion it must also mean then that our present position is absurd <laughs> and so it's tremendously liberating our culture is is ruined it's uh, it's a disgrace from which we can now simply walk away well then the question is into what and i believe that our persistent fascination with psychedelic states of mind 
since prehistory forward has been because in the psychedelic state from the you know from the very beginning there was an anticipation of the very end and the very end still lies ahead of us what it is is that our nervous system is in the process of evolving us through a linguistic transformation where language which at the beginning of the process was something that you heard at the end of the process becomes something that you actually see and this simple shift from seeing to hearing is the key to our being able to finally recognize each other and communicate print and linearity and what's called ear bias for language is what has shattered our sense of ourselves as a collectivity a positive way of putting it is to say it's also what created the idea of democracy individual freedom labor unions the vote all of these atomized notions of human obligation and political participation arise out of print but so do ideas like that we're all alike because letters from printing presses on pages are all alike the idea that products should be mass produced out of mass produced subunits this is a printhead notion it could never have occurred to anyone outside of a printing press culture and never has these ideas have imparted to our existence a tremendous material opulence and intellectual poverty and spiritual uniformity and now literally we have to illuminate our civilization we have to take its shoddy spiritually empty bauhaus skeleton and illuminate it psychedelicize it let a thousand paisleys bloom uh, in other words release the design process from a commitment to material values well how can you do that because the bottom line of material values is the bottom line it costs the reason we build in the Bauhaus style for whatever reason we got into it we now build in that style because it's the cheapest around and once you start adding filigrees and changing things costs soar how can you do that in a civilization with a cult of democratic values individualism and print created linear uniformity well the only way you can do it is you have to drop design costs to zero the only way you can do that is if you build virtually this means you build in an electronic dimension that is added on to ordinary cultural space like an orthogonal dimension in other words it's like a TV that you walk into it's called cyberspace and in cyberspace things are built out of light <coughs> so it costs as much to build Versailles as it costs to build a hamburger stand because Versailles and the hamburger stand are just two programs that uh, look exactly the same on disk so what this means is that the previous set of class created values based on the acquisition and control of matter 
begin to break down. This is already happening in America on one level where, you know, to live as a middle-class person is to live on a better level than the Mughal emperors ever dreamed of. I mean, what Mughal emperor could stride to his refrigerator and see cases of French mineral water, juices from the South Seas, pomegranates from South America. Eat your heart out, Mughal Delhi. No chance. So, uh, in a sense, we're beginning to create this leveling, but we have created it by looting the material resources of the rest of the world. Conceivably, it can be created in a virtual space where we would all... Uh, live in this world, a rather monkish existence. But, you know, there's that wonderful passage in Finnegan's Wake where he says, he's speaking of the red light district of Dublin, which is called Moycane, and he says, here in Moycane we flop on the seamy side, but up Nient, prospector, you sprout all your worth and you woof your wings. If you want to be phoenixed, come and be parked. Well, he was advocating death as a solution to life's problems. If you want to be phoenixed, come and be parked. Uh, my solution is not so radical. I think if you want to be phoenixed, come and be parked at your local virtual reality arcade. And then you can be phoenixed in, in several ways. Well, some of what I'm saying here is... Uh, is facetious. We talked last night about Stan Tennant's wonderful object. Uh, for those of you who weren't here, this is a man, a Kabbalistic scholar, who has developed a piece of sculpture such that when you illuminate it from a certain angle, the Hebrew letter Aleph appears as a shadow, and then you move the light slightly, and Aleph turns into bet, and then you move the light slightly, and so on. In order, his sculpture produces all of the Hebrew letters as shadows from this beautiful form, which he calls the lily. And uh, uh, it ties in with uh, an experience that I had. But Well, first let me talk a little bit more about this lily thing that Tenon has discovered. He also made one for Demotic Greek, which, you know, for those of us who thought it was proof positive that Hebrew was the language of God, this was a real blow to the chest. But because he did one for Demotic Greek, too, and it works just as well, implying, and he's working on Arabic, implying that perhaps such forms exist for all alphabets. And so then I was thinking about this last night, and I said, well, if there's a sculpture in, four in three dimensions that throws the two-dimensional alphabets, then obviously, in a higher dimension, there must be a form which throws into lower dimensions the sculptures that make the alphabet. So that means all alphabets, all letters, lead back to a hyperdimensional surface of some sort, which can probably then be described with some kind of weird fractal algorithm. And so then I thought, wow, this is a pretty Hebraic vision of what's going on here. We have the alphabets 
of local languages being generated from higher dimensional objects that are three-dimensional that are then referent to still higher dimensional objects that through which the light of God's love passes scattering out into the radiance of what can be said and uh, in a way this is sort of my vision of the millennium that we will be resorbed into the word you know, the whole story begins in principio et verbum, et verbo caro factum est. In, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was made flesh. The whole cosmic drama is the mystery of what it is for the Word to be made flesh. Language is seeking to birth itself into the domain of concrete existence. That's obviously what the Word made flesh means and uh, it seems to me that if the word can be made flesh this implies a reciprocity it implies that the flesh can be made word and this brings us back to what I was talking about at the very beginning this evening which is the curiously literary nature of reality that it's much more like uh, a novel by Thomas Pynchon than it is like an equation by Ilya Prigozhin. And why is that? Is it because, in fact, the flesh is word? And that understanding this is the real task of uncovering our spirituality. Somehow it's a riddle, it's a conundrum, it's a koan. If we could correctly understand this, if the world did not disappear immediately, at least it would roll around in the palm of your hand like a spinning marble, as the I Ching promises. It's something about the recognition of the primacy of the word, that history is the process of the descent of the word into concrete expression, I didn't say matter, and that our relation to this retroflexive process is an ascent into the word, a, a going toward the approaching mystery and a meeting there in a domain of unknowability, essentially. I mean, this is the casting into being that Heidegger talked about. This is the going to meet the stranger. This is the flight of the alone to the alone that is the driving force of Plotinus's mysticism. Well, that's really all I have to say about that. So, uh, let me see what time to... How, how am I doing? Yeah, let's, uh, let's take some questions if there are any. Do you know how to use Amanides muscaria medicinally and shamanistically without killing yourself? I can tell you we're following my argument with basic breath. <clears throat> Carefully, because it's dangerous. It's dangerous because it's seasonally variable geographically variable and genetically variable and that's enough variables that you should be very careful with what you're doing uh, generally I don't recommend it it's v the attention that has been given to that mushroom is to my mind entirely out of proportion to its cultural importance this is because Gordon Wasson fastened in on it with a tenacious will as Soma. He decided 
that it was Soma. Are you all up to speed on what we're talking about here? Soma was this mysterious, ecstatic, hallucinogenic plant that the Rig Vedas were basically composed about. The major subject of the Rig Vedas is Soma. The ninth mandala of the Rig Veda is a paean of praise to Soma that it exalts it above all the other gods. And no one knows what Soma was. The descriptions are, are puzzling. It seems to have been... It didn't have leaves. It had yellow flowers. It grew in mountains. And they speak of pressing it. It was prepared some way. It was pressed. It was filtered. And then they talk about this golden liquid which they drank. And Gordon Wasson, because of the importance of the Indo-Aryan people who wrote the Vedas for connecting up all of the history of what archaeologists call Old Europe with the Neolithic Middle East and India. It was very important to try and understand what Soma was. But the problem that has bedeviled everyone who was an enthusiast for Amanita muscaria as Soma is that it's a bad trip. It is not reliably an ecstatic intoxicant. In fact, it's fairly reliably a bellyache. And um, people have pounded it with milk curd. There was a whole school of thought which said that the enzymes active in raw milk would decarboxylate muscarine, the poison, into muscamol, the hallucinogen. But, you know, this didn't stand the, the test of human trials. It didn't appear to be true. Then other people said you have to dry them for months or smoke them over a fire. Again, this is, doesn't seem to be reliable. So, uh, Wasson went to the grave. He, he, in his last book, Persephone's Quest, he referred to Amanita Muscaria as the supreme entheogen of all time which was just a completely wrong-headed judgment, I believe. And this was from the man who discovered the true psilocybin mushroom cult in Mexico. There was an angle on all this which Wasson completely overlooked because of his bias towards certain languages. And that is that along with all this Indo-European Vedic Hindu material, <laughs> There was a Zendavestan literature based around Haoma, the same stuff, same word. And from there, Flattery argues that uh, it was Pagaman Harmala, that it was harmaline, that it was not a mushroom, that it was a higher plant in the uh, Zygophilaceae. And uh, I think probably he's right, actually. It's a very interesting book. Apparently, uh, uh, in the Avestan classical period, no one would have dreamed of having a spiritual experience without resort to drugs. They just put it very plainly. They're the most matter-of-fact people. Uh, these texts are fascinating. And, but they don't devalue it. They say, you know, here's our map of the spirit world entirely based on our drug experiences and here are the drugs we use and to see these angels you must use this drug and to see these angels this drug and so forth we don't really know what these drugs were because the the 
etymologies are lost. But harmaline figures very strongly in all of this. And of course, harmaline is a uh, neurotransmitter present in human metabolism. In fact, I didn't get into it tonight because I was trying to keep it off the biochemistry and that sort of thing. But this transformation of language from something heard to seen that I was talking about, I believe is a one or two gene mutation. That's all it would take because in the human pineal gland there is a compound called adenoroglomerotropine. That's what the enzymologists call it. But when you show it to a, a plant biochemist, he says it's 6-methoxytetrahydroharmalan, and so it is. Adenoroglomerotropine and 6-methoxytetrahydroharmalan are the same thing. Well, it's a psychedelic harmine alkaloid, similar to what's in Pergamon harmala. It uh, could be converted to DMT by a simple methylation. Well, a one-gene mutation would make a methylation possible. Attention, consciousness, cultural values. We don't know how many times since the invention of language there have been significant mutations in the, in the uh, chemistry of the nervous system that have created significant changes in cultural programming. I mean, doesn't anyone find it a little odd that the laws of perspective were discovered less than 400 years ago? I mean, what the hell was wrong with people before that? How can you discover the laws of perspective? I mean, I find that not credible for somebody to say that the laws of perspective were discovered. It's always seemed weird to me. It's as though, uh, you know, there, w there was a shift a very subtle tweaking of the processing of visual space itself necessary to be able to do that. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> you've spoken about um, the Word and the Word made flesh. And um, Dorothy Sayers wrote a book called The Mind of the Maker, in which she discusses the Trinity as... Um, really an image of what the creative process is all about. And where the father is having a, like a great idea for a play is the father. The son is making the thing happen on stage, bringing it into the world and having it made flesh. And then the spirit is the response that you have to that completed product and how all three of them really beget one another and they nurture one another. Um, and she talks about people who have these problems with scalene trinities where there's someone who, let's say, may have only the father, only have a great idea, but be unable to make it into something that's physically real on a stage. And I wonder if you could pick that up. Uh, well, as far as yeah, I mean, speaking to it generally, I think if you think of history as this kind of a process, Western history as the manifestation of uh, the Demiurgos, Ildabawath, Jehovah, and then you get this middle declension in the Christos, and then this peculiar and misunderstood promise of the redemption by the Holy Ghost. Uh, McLuhan who's a very interesting figure as, you know, a radical thinker in the 
in communications theory and a devout Catholic believed that uh, the holy the manifestation of the Holy Ghost was electricity and and to him the ringing of the planet by electronic media was the enfolding <coughs> arms of an archangel I mean he literally saw electricity as God's love made manifest and and he may not he, he hasn't been proven wrong yet I mean it may yet knit us all together and make us one and lift us off and send us to the stars. It's some wonderful stuff, electricity. You know, for I, I like to talk about it because for thousands of years, electricity was this stuff which s some people knew about. And what they knew was that you skinned a cat and you and you dried its skin in the wind, and then you got an amber rod, and you a polished rod of amber, and then you would go into a dark room with your cat skin and your amber rod, and you would rub it back and forth like this, and then you would pull the amber rod away from the fur, and you would see miniature lightning storms of static electricity, and that was it. For thousands of years, that was it. And then in the 17th century, make it the 18th century, uh, people invented what were called Leiden jars, which were this tricky way of storing this stuff so that you could store up a lot of it and then in a dark room you could discharge it across a gap with this snap. And from that... You know, I mean, you talk about a shamanic invocation. From that, you know, we light cities, we smelt steel, we sink shafts miles into the earth. And it's just this little elemental that we were able to coax into becoming our friend. Well, who knows how much of this sort of thing there is. According to McLuhan, that's the major thing. And the electrification of the body... You know, this is a theme you get as early as Whitman. I sing the body electric. You get it in Stephen Vincent Benet in his poem, John Brown's Body, where he says, I see the human body, cold electric rage, and he, he pictures it as a superstructure. Uh, electricity as information, as the logos, as the freeing and rarefaction of thought, it all, uh, it's credible. It's credible. I mean, when you think about electricity, in and of itself, uh, as modern inventions go, it must be the most benign there is, because other than seating criminals in electric-wired chairs, it is not a weapon of mass destruction. You cannot rain it down on your enemy's cities. Uh, it, it's uh, pure energy in the service of light, one thing, and information. And it's generated, I, I don't know how many of you know this, but it's generated out of stable magnetic fields. I mean, when we were in the fifth grade, we made engines by wrapping uh, nails with wires and setting them delicately balanced between permanent magnets. And, you know, you coax this stuff into being. We take it for granted because we don't understand it. 
But if you're down close to where it's coming into being, it's like coaxing some kind of demon out of the matrix and into the service of thought and light. Very psychedelic. So how do you see the body being coaxed back into the word? Well, I don't know. It's a hard thing to picture, isn't it? Um, well, maybe it's like those Tibetan letters that start becoming real and vibrating. I don't know. Well, there are a number of... I think we have like pieces of the puzzle, but we don't know quite how to arrange them. One is virtual reality. Do you all understand this concept? Because I mention it and it's quickly becoming central to my references. Virtual reality is this technology now being developed where they give you a helmet and a body glove and when you look in the helmet you see another world and you're in it and you can walk around and pick things up and open doors and and it's all sustained by computers but the illusion is very real and they're only at the beginning of the process of creating this illusion okay so that's a technology sitting off there with a potential application. Another is nanotechnology. Nanotechnology is making things very small. And there's a whole enthusiasm for this. And people who, uh, you know, I talked yesterday about uh, being down at the baths and watching the stratocumulus clouds move over the ocean. The number of water droplets in a stratocumulus cloud exceeds the number of people in the world. Therefore, if we were the size of water droplets, we could simply exist in that kind of a, of a cloudscape. Well then, okay, so that's another technology that's sitting there. Another is uh, this wonderful fantasy that I told some of you about a few days ago where we see a man walking on a beach and the man, his planet is perfect. It's oceans and it's atmosphere and it's glaciers <laughs> and, it's, and it's equatorial forests are all in balance. And this man is naked except for a thread like a Hindu thread that crosses him. And on this thread there's sufficient space for as much as a thousand or more small beads. Each bead is a doorway into a technological potentiality that is entirely suppressed in three-dimensional space. In three-dimensional space there is just man and nature. But when this man closes his eyes there are menus and these menus lead to other menus. In other words, the culture, the entire culture, has become virtual. This is one possibility, that the culture be made virtual. Another possibility, which is sort of the reverse of that, and there's a company on the peninsula trying to do this, is to place a textual reality behind apparent reality, so that everything is a button, you know? It's, it is what it is, but it's also a button. So I look at this, the question forms in my mind, what is this? The what pushes a button, and textual accompaniment informs me that this is cypress wood cut three years ago. 
Do you see how what this would do to the world? Now we're, we're well on our way in the project of making the word flesh and the flesh word. We at least have them lined up with the word behind the flesh and in some cases the flesh behind the word embedded, embedded, embedded ontologically arranged in a situation of mutual reinforcement. Uh, okay, another uh, uh, technology is... Um, some kind of uh, s- some kind of uh, severing from the physical connection, and then there's a lot of debate about is this possible? The old consciousness without an object riffraff. Well, it w- it has to be explored. It can't be known. The other thing is the persistence of the intuition of non-material worlds inhabited by self-organizing intellectes of one sort or another seems to imply that some kind of dematerialization is at least theoretically possible. Uh, I've talked a lot in these circles about the, the questions raised by the ecstasis that comes with DMT, where you actually break into a world where there are what I call autonomous self-transforming machine elves, but what we have discussed in terms of are these the sprites of classical European mythology? Are they dwellers in some parallel continuum, unsuspected by any of our sciences or ontologies? And then a still more unsettling possibility, are these... Is this somehow an ecology of souls? Is the eerie connectedness to the human dimension that these things have because, in fact, this is a stage of some sort in human existence? If what God can bring tangential to history means is human beings unraveling the mystery of physical death, then I think that would be a sufficient fulfillment of the uh, sort of dramaturgical demands of a denouement that we stride toward the mystery, the mystery strides towards us, and everything is resolved in a revelation of the understanding and meaning of death. Uh, This kind of thing makes me very uncomfortable, uh, perhaps because it's fairly feeling-toned and emotion-laden. I can. Im- it doesn't trouble me to imagine contacting uh, informational beings in a parallel continuum, but the notion of encountering an ecology of souls, I think, is hair-raising if you take it seriously, because uh, even the most spiritual of us are so deeply programmed by the assumptions of scientific materialism that I think something like that on the short term here and now uh, really gives us pause. Brother David. Uh, in this process of uh, waking through to the burning flesh, where do you see the function of the poets? Well, you know, people have talked, Robert Graves and others, about what he called an Ursprach, an original speech, and Celtic poetics somewhat assumes this. 
I think this language that is seen is a project that the poets should take very seriously. We need to not simply make better poetry, we need to make poetry of an entirely different order. And we will recognize it when we see it, not when we hear it. It will not be heard, it will be seen. To carry language from, three, from two dimensions <coughs> into three is the task of the poet and the rebel in the 20th century. And there is a model for this, which I will explain to you so that it doesn't seem so outlandish and so we can see that nature, once again, has sanctioned this move. And that is, a long time ago, 700 million years ago, more or less, the great tree of life made a primary division between the vertebrates, the creatures with backbones, and the invertebrates. Evolving along the invertebrate line and reaching the greatest uh, brain size and complexity of nervous system on the invertebrate side of things were the cephalopods. These are the squids and the benthic octopi, the eight-armed ones and the ten-armed ones. You may not realize it, but they are actually mollusks related to escargot. So they are an extremely primitive creature from the point of view of those of us with backbones and binocular vision and frontal lobes and so forth and so on. Nevertheless, the interesting thing about benthic octopi is that they can change their color over a wide range. Now, you may have heard this fact and assumed that it had to do with camouflage against their surroundings so that they can avoid predators. This is not what it's about at all. Octopi change color, and they can also change the shape of their skin from smooth to rugose and wrinkled, and then what's called pileate, little points all over it. They can go through all these color changes and texture changes. And octopi have extremely well-evolved eyes. In fact, evolutionary biologists always compare the eyes of octopi to human eyes as an example of what is called parallel non-convergent evolution, because clearly the two are not related, but the argument is made, you see, they solve the problem the same way in two different places. So it's a very neat example of, of convergent, uh, non uh, convergent evolution. Um, but what is interesting for our discussion is the mode of communication of these things. They become their linguistic intent. This repertoire of blushes, dots, stripes, traveling fields, color changes, and then, because they are soft-bodied, they can quickly reveal and conceal all parts of their body very quickly. So if you watch an octopus in communication, its surface texture is changing, its color is changing, and it is hiding and revealing its dancing. And it's a dance of pure meaning, perceived visually by the object of its intention, which is other octopi. So 
compare this for a moment to our method of communication. We use what are we use rapidly modulated small mouth noises. As primates, we have an incredible ability to make small mouth noises. We can do this for up to six hours at a stretch without tiring. <laughs> no other thing that we can do approaches the level of variation with low energy investment that the small mouth noises do. A person using a deaf and dumb language is exhausted after 45 minutes. But the problem with the small mouth noises form of communication is I have a thought. I look in a dictionary that I have created out of my life experience. I map the thought onto the dictionary. I make the requisite small mouth noises. They cross physical space. They enter your ear. You look in your dictionary, which is different from my dictionary. But if we speak what we call the same language, it will be close enough that you will sort of understand what I mean. Now, if I don't say to you, what do I mean? You and I will go gaily off in the assumption that we understand each other. But if I say to you, did you understand what I said then? You say, yes, you meant that you don't want to sit with Harry and Sally because their pending divorce makes you uncomfortable. So, no, that's not what I meant. I meant... So there's misunderstanding because the dictionaries are not matched. Now, notice what's happening with the octopi. There is no dictionary. Both parties are seeing the same thing because my body is my meaning. I become my meaning, and you behold the meaning I have become. I am like a naked thought, not even a naked nervous system. More naked than that, I am like a naked thought in aqueous space, unfolding in time. I maintain this is why octopi eject clouds of ink. It's so they can have private thoughts. <laughs> because if you can be seen, you can be understood. Well, uh, this is a perfect model uh, condoned by nature for the kind of transformation that we want to lead our culture toward. And I don't think it's that outlandish. Our previous animal totems were chosen unconsciously and were rather unfortunate, I think. I take the totem of the 19th century to be um, the horse expressed as the steam engine. And the totemic animal of the 20th century is the raptor, the bird of prey, expressed as supersonic high-performance fighter aircraft, which is just, you know, the leanest, meanest machine you can get together these days. But these um, mammalian and avian images are too close to the rapacious heart of the primate inside us. Embracing an image of the soul like that of the octopi, is a permission for a, a strange and alien kind of beauty to be let into our lives. And these things are strange and alien, let me tell you. The situation I described with these octopi was uh, coastal, shallow water octopi, so-called circulitoral octopi. But they have also evolved into the depths 
the so-called abyssal octopi that exist below 1500 meters in the sea where there is absolute darkness and to carry their intention to communicate into that darkness over the past 700 million years they have evolved phosphorescent organs and have covered themselves with lights with eyelid-like membranes that can be rapidly blinked and flickered so that when you descend into the abyss you then see pure linguistic intentionality among the cephalopoidea because they have become what we aim to become under the wise leadership and stewardship of George Bush, namely, a thousand <laughs> points of light. <laughs> Is this guy for real? WH Online. Was it a WH Online? Yeah, I think stole it from him. Was it uh, Flanders Fields? Armies clash by night and that whole business. Are they only beholding one another, or is there maybe a mechanism at work, like when yawning is contagious, that it's not only watching, but actually what happens to your body is transmitted to mine? Well, this is fascinating stuff to study. The, the biologists who are studying these things are actually creating a grammar and a syntax and they ha are beginning to understand what certain things mean what it, and, and, the, and the level of meaning there's a wonderful book called um, Communication and Non-Communication Among the Cephalopods and it makes the point that communication is a very double-edged thing you want to communicate to somebody but usually, you, your message is all, it's also important that your message not be picked up by other somebodies. So there can't be just a full-on drive toward apprehendability. There also is a countervailing force toward concealment, obscurantism, double entendre, so forth. You know, someone said language was invented to lie. Well, in a way, that's true because of the problem of non-communication. As soon as you have something to communicate, there are places you don't want the message to go. And so this creates a very interesting problem. I would, if I were 20 years old, I'd go back into marine biology just to spend time with these things. They're quite amazing and they have very large brain capacity I'm could be I think John Lilly was all mixed up to look for mind in the water in that it was mammalian chauvinism that drove them to dolphins and and whales that maybe they are intelligent but the language feats when you see videotape of these cephalopods you realize you're in in the presence of an opera what kinds of things are they communicating besides maybe fear or...? Well, they're communicating, they have elaborate uh, sexual displays and uh, it's a very tricky thing, sexuality among cephalopods, because the male usually doesn't survive 
the encounter. So a lot of time is spent getting it right before you commit yourself. <laughs> so they have a very complicated courtship thing. And, and one of the things that's always said about them is that, uh, you know, I mean, every child's book will tell you this about octopi. They're shy creatures. Well, guess why? It's because they wear their heart on their sleeve. Everywhere they go, other octopi can tell exactly what they're thinking and feeling. So they live alone, and they only get together on special occasions for communication, basically. And, uh, and the repertoire is as complex as human language, so that they could be discussing the equivalent of uh, Spencer's epithalamian or something. I mean, we don't know what they're talking about. Do we have a sort of Rosetta Stone, you know, about... We have a primitive grammar, but uh, it's only for one species. And uh, I don't, I'm not really interested in what they're saying, because I think it would only make sense if you were an octopus. <laughs> but I'll bet that... Uh, you see, it's a model for us. Wouldn't we like to dance for each other and be perfectly understood? And we, wouldn't we like to see someone dance and to know that this was uh, their mind and their body somehow at one? In a way, God, does everything go back to everything? In a way, this is the theme of skinny legs and all. This is the theme of the dance of the seven veils. Octopi do it. Nubile Hebrew princesses do it. Everybody dances toward the truth, dropping veils as they go. And then, of course, the nakedness of truth is a cliché. Well, you, you mentioned uh, to bring it to a practical level. In, do uh, that, in yes. My life. Uh, <laughs> you mentioned the hallucinogenic experience as being um, one, one way that um, I don't think I accelerate anything in my life. I feel that I just align with and move in a freer way. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't seek out a hallucinogenic experience in order to, to accelerate or to get more transform or anything. I do it because it's enjoyable. It's, um, it's truly exciting and passionate, and I do seem to transform in the, in the process and grow. And, um, are there any ways or other ways that you might suggest, and also, I, I'm interested in sound, which is, you're talking about going from sound to light, mm -hmm. and and I, I have a way of starting where I am, where I, or again, following my excitement, which happens to be in making tones, and I've reproduced experiences such as, um, very simply, um, like, like a hot tub, where I make a tone and another person has an experience of being in the hot tub, they go from a being cold to being very comfortable, very vulnerable, very open, very loving, and um, I, I, it occurred to me that I could reproduce a mushroom experience or a um, you know some of these drugs you mentioned that are in the Amazon. That you could reproduce it with sound. I could make tones, and such as in Tibet, they can you know the tones are you know can bring physical objects into being and um, and move energy and such and. That's, that's my exploration, but I was wondering if you had any ideas of... Uh... Well, something sort of along that line um, that I've worked with for years and observed for years and I find very interesting is, you know, in South America there is this drug, 
plant drug of shamanic tradition of great age called ayahuasca or yahe. And what seems it's a it's chemically a little different from anything we've discussed, and so and consequently neurologically a little different. When it was when this drug was first uh, discovered in the twenties, they called uh, they isolated a white crystal from it, and they named it telepathine because they believed that these deep forest Indians were having some kind of state of group-mindedness behind this. Well then, and that was all very exciting, that there was a drug called telepathine, but then later they found out that the drug had already been discovered in another plant, in Pergamon Harmala, the Soma plant I mentioned, and had been named Harmine, so that, that the rules of nomenclature, that took precedent. But persistently, since then, there had been reports of group states of mind caused by this drug. So we explored this in the 70s fairly thoroughly, in 71, in 72, again in 76, and again in 81. And um, different things are going on. First of all, the people down there who take this drug are into what they call Icaros. Icaros are magical songs, I-C-A-R-O-S, Icaro. And the, sh the accomplishment of a shaman is judged by how many of these magical songs he has. And they're taught to you by the spirits, they say. But the interesting thing is, is that the Icaro, within the culture, is criticized as a work of visual art. It is not thought of as a song. It is not listened to. It is looked at. And when people criticize it, they criticize its form and its color. And in taking this drug, we discovered that there is something about it. It, it seems to dissolve a cultural barrier between the synesthesia of sound and light so that you can make a tone like and it emerges as a streak of cyan blue that just stands there in space as long as you... And it, clearly, this stripe is related to the sound. When you stop the sound, the stripe disappears. Well, then you discover that when you modulate the sound, the color is modulated. Well, then you begin breaking it up and you discover that voice has become become transformed into an instrument for manipulating light. And again, it has to do with these drugs which are very close to neurotransmitters just one gene away from being naturally produced. It's as though this is the biochemical place where what we experience as the evolution of language and our abilities, our cognitive abilities to integrate and express language are happening so that, uh, you know, I think this should be looked at. I think maybe the path to the kind of visual visually beheld form of communication that I'm talking about <laughs> is to look at shamanic cultures where this may have been happening all along and people assume it. It is true when you go up these jungle rivers to the really bare-assed people that uh, they, the elders do get together and take this stuff 
and they do have a collective, complex collective image of what should be done for the good of the group. It's not exactly a vision of the future. It's more complicated than that because they also have a vision, a, a three-dimensional vision of the kinship, kinship structure of the village, of a whole bunch of clan and sib group associations to plants and animals in the forest which are hidden from the eyes of the casual visitor. They are, it isn't that so much that they predict the future as that they go into a higher dimension of their own cultural information space and from there they make decisions. Where should we hunt? Who should we make war on or not make war on? Where should we move? Um, you know, and even decisions about uh, triage of children and this sort of thing, because this does go on. So, uh, you know, how much of human navigation through history has been done by processing ordinary cultural information on a higher dimensional level by perturbing neurological functioning? I mean, human, if there is any angle that would have given us an edge, we would have found it and we would have used it. And I've discussed in other lectures the way in which small doses of psilocybin improve vision and how this would have fed back into a primitive hunter-gatherer system. It, very simply, they would have just outbred everybody not using mushrooms because a pair of chemical binoculars in a hunting environment is an adaptive advantage that could not be ignored, and so forth and so on. Yeah. By, by copying your hand movements, it helps me see what you're talking about, like in a virtual reality. And that's what they do in neuro-linguistic programming. And the people who made firewalking popular, like Tony Robbins in this country, were neuro-linguistic programmers. Maybe neuro-linguistic programmers could study octopi. Yeah. Mm. If I had eight hands, I could really get gestural. I, I, a funny experience involving octopi. I know a woman, I'm sure she would not begrudge me this description of her. She is a very frank exhibitionist. I mean, this is the woman who at every party takes her clothes off and dances on the tabletops and so forth. She is an inveterate exhibitionist. She's totally frank about it. And um, I, I uh, had been to the Monterey Aquarium and seen the octopus there. They have a giant octopus. Well, most of the time this guy just hunkers low and he's sort of off in a corner, one beady eye, <laughs> checking you out. But, of course, because octopi have this mode of communication, uh, uh, they're very set up to respond to visual display. So this woman walked past this tank, and this octopus practically leaped into the air. It came down out of the tunnel. It was pressing against the glass. It was beating against the glass. And what it was, was one exhibitionist recognizing another. I mean, it was just clear across the species lines. Uh, the power of neurosis knows no barrier. <laughs> she also had almost orange hair, very red, bright hair that the sunlight had hit.
that's true. It was probably sending a message to this octopus that was uh, obscene uh, in the very least. Was she dancing? No, she was just trying to be unobtrusive, but this woman being unobtrusive is a showstopper. <laughs> Terence, when you talk about language or the word, you said people talk, to me, you left out like the whole body language. And um, when you go into print, I'm making all these unconscious assumption um, values of what you're saying is true, partly based on your body language. True. But body language is prob is um, you know has really faded for us probably because of the telephone. I mean the telephone really staunches that. And uh, yes, it, it would be it, there. We probably were much more linguistically rich in the past. And well, we've muted ourselves. By watching your hand. Yeah. Terence, just to let you know what happens when you discover sparks nowadays. When I was a kid, I was a science buff and I made a Tesla coil and so on. Before that, I accidentally uh, induced a spark in a transformer. Unexpectedly, the spark jumped and it was sort of my first religious experience. I saw this spark and all sorts of things burst loose in my 10-year-old head. Two years later, the FCC triangulated my house for emitting uh, spurious radiations because, you know, you have to regulate all that sort of thing. Uh -huh. And I felt sort of uh, like someone put a big pot lid over my head and between that and being suckered in by the Moody in Bible Institute with their big Tesla coil movie, yeah, it right. just left a bad taste in my mouth. I'm, I'm glad we're on to other things now besides sparks and amber. Oh, okay. A bitter experience. There is a notion, you know, in Latin, spark is, is, is scintilla. This word exists only in English in the legal phrase, there was not a scintilla of evidence against him. But in alchemy, this idea lived on for a long, long time. And there's a whole literature of, of causing the scintilla and seeing it like you did. So you were unconsciously caught up in an alchemical arc. Well, why don't we knock off? I think that's enough for this evening. You're listening to the Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. Before I forget to mention it, and uh, maybe this is because my undergraduate university degree was in electrical engineering, but I thought that Terence's rap about electricity being a benign elemental that we coaxed into helping us was as beautiful a poetic riff as I've heard him do. I'd never uh, really thought about electricity in quite the same way as he was able to personify it just now. You know, it's uh, riffs like that that caused me to call him the Bard McKenna. And now I don't want to belabor this to the point of absurdity, but when Terence was talking about language being transformed from something heard into something that's seen, well, uh, I don't know, this is simplistic, but isn't that what takes place in a book or on a web page full of text? Isn't that language that can be seen? Uh, it now seems an obvious implication, and I'm sure that Terence must have addressed this at some point, but I can't recall him ever talking about it uh, myself. And uh, yes, I realize that he was talking about synesthesia, but I don't see how we can deny that a book consists of language that can be seen. And as for synesthesia, 
I do realize that a lot of people who write about ayahuasca tell of not just hearing the acaros, but seeing them as well. In fact, uh, Terrence talked about that on many occasions. But after having been uh, in quite a few ayahuasca circles myself, and over a period of more than a dozen years, I have uh, never once had that experience. Uh, There were a few times when one of the other people in our circle told of being able to see the songs, but those times I can count on the fingers of one hand. Maybe it's uh, more common than I think, but in my own experience, it's a very rare phenomenon, and unfortunately, it isn't something that can be scientifically examined. Uh, At least I don't know of any such experiments. So, uh, and this is just me now, but you'll have to come to your own conclusions based on your own experience. But for me, I'm now of the opinion that I won't personally be experiencing synesthesia myself, and so I'm now engaged in another way of making language visible, and that's on the printed page. Of course, uh, now that I'm doing most of my reading on a Kindle, I guess that uh, <laughs> I guess the fr- phrase uh, "printed page" will also soon become obsolete. And don't get me wrong, uh, I dearly love old-fashioned printed books. Although I've uh, already given away well over a thousand books that I collected and read during my life, I'm still surrounded by, uh, well, hundreds of others that I just can't seem to part with. So I don't mean to put down on the paper form of books. That said, however, uh, I have to admit that now, uh, whenever I read a print book, which I still do, I find them much more difficult to use. For one thing, uh, late in the day, as my eyes get tired, it's really nice on the Kindle to be able to increase the font size from what was more comfortable in the morning. In fact, uh, I've had to adjust my reading schedule so that I read my print books early in the day before my eyes get tired. You know, it's funny, uh, until a few years ago, I hadn't really noticed how small the print is (laughs) in uh, many paperback books and uh, even for some of the hardcover ones. So, while I'm on the topic of books, let me point out the obvious about books and the McKenna brothers. It was books, not drugs, that shaped their lives and careers. Let me say that again in case you uh, happen to see yourself as a budding bard or psychonaut. It was books, not drugs, that truly shaped the lives and the careers of the brothers McKenna. And uh, this has recently been brought home to me uh, quite clearly after reading one of the books that Dennis McKenna mentions in his new memoir, The Brotherhood of the Screaming Abyss. In it, uh, Dennis describes his early youth with Terence and how they were both fascinated with the future and the nature of time. Then uh, he goes on to say that the greatest impact on their early thinking wasn't Carl Jung or H.G. Wells or Jules Verne, but it was Arthur C. Clarke's novels, Childhood's End, and The City and the Stars. Now, let me just rewind here for a minute and say that I only had a few, and uh, they were very brief, conversations with Terrence about his favorite books. The two that I remember him mentioning are The Phenomena of Man by Teilhard and Star Maker by Stapleton. In fact, when he told me that he'd lost his copy of Star Maker, uh, I went out and found a used copy and sent it to him. And uh, in case you've never read that book, I highly recommend it. It's, uh, it's available for free at Project Gutenberg, by the way. Now, getting back to my story, after reading Dennis's statement about the importance of Clark's books on their thinking, uh, well, I downloaded copies of both of them, and uh, I've just now finished reading Childhood's End. Wow, if you've already read it, you'll know what I mean. Not only does Clark incorporate some of the main elements of both Star Maker and the Phenomena of Man into his uh, masterfully told story, 
He basically provides a high-level outline of the thought of Terence McKenna. At least that's the way I see it, uh, but I realize that you may not agree with me. However, Childhood's End has the eschaton and uh, the global transformation of consciousness that Terence attempted to catalyze through the experiment at La Chirera. And it also uh, has a transcendental object at the end of time reflecting back into the present and uh, other concepts that Terence went on to uh, develop into ideas that, well, we've all gravitated to at one time or another. Now, I'm not saying that Terence simply lifted his ideas from Clark's books. Uh, That's not what I mean at all. What I'm trying to say is that if you are already familiar with Terence's ideas, then you can, uh, at least if you have an imagination like mine, You can definitely see how the little seeds of these ideas that Clark uh, obviously synthesized from Teilhard and from Stapleton, uh, how they've grown and blossomed into a wide range of truly fantastic concepts that became the main features of uh, Terence's shtick, as he called it. So, why am I spending so much time on this, you ask? Well, it's because I want to make it clear, particularly to our younger members of this salon, how important it is to keep reading. And it really doesn't matter what you read, as long as you read something every day, even if it's only a couple of pages in the latest graphic novel that interests you. You see, long before Terence ingested his first psychoactive substance, he'd already done a significant amount of preparation by reading all kinds of things, as uh, Dennis has documented so well in, in his book. It's my assumption that at the time Terence was first getting into these books, he had no idea about what he would do in life. But over time, and obviously on a subconscious level, the thoughts that he put into his head through the reading that he was doing eventually gained a life of their own and uh, led him on what turned out to be a splendid journey. And looking back on my own life, uh, well, I can see how some of my early reading must have also shaped my life through the decisions I made at various crossroads. The first book of this sort uh, that I remember having a major impact on me uh, was Kerouac's On the Road, which I read more than once during my last two years of high school. In college, it was The Phenomena of Man that uh, first let me know that there was a lot more to the life of the spirit than my teachers were letting on. Other books uh, that have had a major influence on me are uh, Persig's Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance and Marilyn Ferguson's The Aquarian Conspiracy. I've now read uh, each of those books several times, and uh, to be honest, they don't all speak to me in the same way that they did uh, when I first read them. But then uh, I've changed a lot since then. Well, changed utterly, as Yeats would say. Nonetheless, uh, at the time I read each of these books, they made an indelible imprint on me, and without them, I doubt if, uh, well, I doubt if I'd be with you here in the psychedelic salon right now. Without what I've learned, felt, and experienced uh, through all of the books that I've read, well, I shudder to think of what I'd be like, uh, particularly if my only input came from cable television. So, if you're still with me, uh, well, thanks for listening. And now, how about doing a little reading before you go to sleep tonight? In case you haven't figured it out, uh, I highly recommend reading as often as you can. Uh, It's really worth making some time for. But right now, I've got to uh, make some time to pack for a cross-country trip that I'll begin on the 31st. And that's the day that I catch the Southwest Chief, bound from Los Angeles for Chicago, where I'll then catch the Capital Limited, bound for Washington, D.C., and uh, where I'll be attending a family reunion for a few days before catching the return trains and heading back to the West Coast, where I'll arrive once again in mid-January. 
So, as you ring in the new year, you can uh, think of me rolling along the rails on my little sentimental journey, safely away from the internet, email, the telephone, and any other modern convenience that I can distance myself from for a few days of old-fashioned travel. So, don't give up on me or think that I've closed the doors to the salon, because I'll be back with you as uh, soon as I can after my return. And now, uh, as you and I close out this interesting year of 2012, I wish you the best for the coming year and beyond. As I say, this is Lorenzo, once again signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends. Music